Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome in Rose City to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Ryan Clark, joined by Chris Reifer. Uh, an eventful 24 hours in Soccer City. Giovanni Savarese and the Portland Timbers have parted ways after an unsuccessful season and the team being on pace to miss the playoffs for the second consecutive year. Uh, Gio was the coach of the Timbers for six years, had plenty of success, including two appearances in MLS Cup and a victory in the MLS's back tournament during the pandemic. Um, a, a highly successful coach, somebody that was beloved in many ways by fans throughout his years but you know obviously the tides shifted in recent years there was plenty of vitriol <laughs> about the results that that were occurring on the field and and geo shouldered a lot of that blame from folks in the soccer community and there were also issues off the field in terms of relationships with players you had of course three different public fallings out with players, Eric Williamson toward the end of last season, Alias Ivicic earlier this year, and then Santiago Moreno uh, and his transfer request earlier this season. A lot to unpack about the Giovanni Savarese era, one filled with success and, and heartbreak and disappointment and confusion, but it's over now, and Miles Joseph, the assistant coach for the Timbers, uh, will fill in as the interim coach for the remainder of the season. Um, Chris, initial takeaways as as we now move on from from the Geo era. Well, you know, in looking at the Geo era as as a whole, I think you you summarized a lot of it really well. By and large, a really successful coaching tenure. Um, he stuck around in Portland for six years, which is a long time in terms of uh, of coaching tenures, uh, and. You know, I, I I think the and that was well deserved based on the the, the success that the Timbers had in his first four years as coach. Uh, frankly, he proved me wrong a number of times in in the in those first four years, uh, and and I I think you have to look at that and and give him a lot of respect for the job that he he did with the the Timbers. And I agree with you that there are a lot of things that we can sort of dive into over the course of the last 18 months and look at as, uh, as you know, incidents that kind of led to this result. But I actually think the forest level view of it is fairly simple. Uh, he, he just lost the locker room and the Timbers didn't make the kinds of changes that in, in terms of player personnel, they didn't change the locker room enough that you would think he would have a good shot at getting it back. And it's just really, really hard when you kind of lose a group to get them back. 
And that's not even necessarily to say that Geo did things really super wrong. These are a lot of players, many of whom are sort of in the core of the locker room that he's been coaching for a long time. And when something like this happens, I always think back to a conversation I had by a friend in college whose dad was a, a pastor. And I remember I was talking to their dad at, at one point and kind of just talking about that job. And one of the things he said that kind of struck me and has always kind of stuck with me about something like this is is he he said that the thing that he likes least about his job is that he has to move a lot. And it's not that he has to move a lot because he gets reassigned or, or anything like that. It's that he felt that after a certain number of years with the same congregation, he felt like he'd kind of said what he had to say and that there wasn't a whole lot else to add and, and that his message kind of got stale uh, with the congregation. When that happened, the only real thing to do was to go find a new flock. And I think there's a similar dynamic in soccer coaching. It is rare to last much longer than Geo lasted in in Portland. I, I think at, at the beginning of the season, he was in the top five in terms of MLS longstanding coaches. And and so it's rare to to last a whole lot longer than this. And so I think you can even see a way in which he kind of lost the locker room in a way that's not even necessarily reflective of Geo. Geo's a good soccer coach. The Timbers couldn't have done the things that they did in his first four years if he wasn't a good soccer coach. And this is kind of I think pretty easily explainable just by a natural arc of things that happens. And to the extent that there's, there's a lot of, you know, for the timbers going forward reflection that needs to be done, it should be on whether they did the things and did all the things that they can and should have done in order to, if they wanted to keep this going for longer in order to do that. But over the course of the the last several months, when we've talked about it a lot, there's been a decent amount of flack given for <laughs> the fact that we've talked about it a lot from a number of different places. It, it was just becoming untenable and it was plain to see. And I think that is just sort of the truth that caught up with the club when they had to make this move. And it's a move that is sad in many ways I, I, because of the respect that, that Geo commands for the work that he, he did here. It feels like he deserves better than a midseason dismissal. But it's also a necessary move. I mean, if this was going to be the decision at the end of the season, there's no reason to leave him flapping in the wind as a lame duck coach that doesn't have a connection with his locker room for the final 10 games. That doesn't serve him well. That doesn't serve the club well. That doesn't serve the players well. And I think that's why this move was made uh, when it was. And so I hope that there's the perspective within the Timbers to be able to look at whether the club did the things that they needed to do to support Geo a good, honest assessment of whether they put him in a good position. But I, I also think they're going to have some real decisions to make going forward. So it's, I, it's a sad, uh, you know, it's a sad moment as the end of an era often is. Um, but I, I, I think that shouldn't get in the way of, of folks looking back and, and giving Gio the credit that he deserves for the job that he did while he was here uh, in Portland while recognizing that good things come to an end. And this is one of those good things that that came to an end. Uh, and that needed to. And speaking personally to to Geo the person, you know, over the last two years, I've had a chance to to work very closely with Geo. He, he's somebody that that you know, in my personal experience, is is a high character guy and and someone who is very friendly, very relational with with the media in general. Uh, won't tell you everything. Will keep things close to the vest when he needs to. Uh, but you know, that's part of the job. 
he'll he always it seems sold uh sold the team at a at a higher price than maybe they they were worth uh particularly in the last two years because in in a lot of ways he had to uh this was a, a team that underperformed by the club's standards by his standards uh and yeah i i do think that his voice may have have gotten stale over the years with some of the the guys that he'd coached for a while and I think that, you know, when that happens, when, when you can't relate necessarily to those guys or, or aren't reaching those guys in that way, um, that sort of spreads around. And and when you have those type of public fallings out with players, um, motivation decreases uh, and effort level can can sometimes be a struggle. That game against it, Houston it was a, a perfect slope. example. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a slippery slope. You, you know, they they lose five zero on Sunday. And and that, you know, as as we talked about off air prior to to the podcast that was probably one of the worst performances in in the history of the timbers and it was i think driven by the fact that the motivation you know under geo was lacking you know these these guys you know they they didn't really play for him that night they they the effort wasn't there and 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 it had not consistently been there for a while we there were some instances in which it was there but there were way too many over the course of this entire season frankly where it wasn't. And this is just, this is the writing on the wall that we've been reading all year. And that I think just became too, too powerful to ignore. Right. And you know, all the stuff with Santi this year, all all the issues with Eva Chich over the last few months, uh, the stuff with Eric, um, which had kind of, you know, fallen into the background this year, not only because things seemed to be okay, but also, you know, Eric got hurt. Um, you know, it, it's, it adds up and, and it's not something that can be ignored. But we also, and, and you talked about this, do have to acknowledge the the resounding success that Geo had. You know, bringing that 2021 team in particular to MLS Cup uh, was was a serious achievement. You know, given where they were uh, at at certain points in that season, um, making it in 2018 with that group was impressive as well. The MLS's back run, um, I actually it's proof. Think, I think, yeah, yeah, I actually think the 2020 Timbers were are certainly in the conversation for the best Timbers team of the MLS era in terms of the way they played there. I mean, folks forget, not only did they win MLS's back, they dominated, uh, absolutely dominated after MLS's back too. Uh, and, and were a little bit unfortunate to go out, uh, early in, in the playoffs because otherwise they appeared poised, uh, for a pretty significant run. You'll remember that they only went out, uh, because of a really last second goal by a then unknown uh, FC Dallas striker named Ricardo Pepe, who we know a little bit more now, <laughs> uh, and, and who it turns out is a pretty good player. Uh, but you know, I that that 2020 Timbers team was really really good, and folks have have sort of, I think, fairly and accurately uh, classified Geo as a primarily counter attacking coach. But that 2020 team actually attacked in a pretty free flowing fun manner, and it was really fun to watch. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think you can, uh, you know, as you correctly point out, the 2018, 2021, 2020, those are three Timbers teams that really did things uh, under his leadership. And and that's that's not nothing. There are an awful lot of coaches who accomplish an awful lot less than that at this level. Right. And you know, I, th- I think this is a move with with an eye on maintaining that level of competitive like quality in, in MLS, right? We've, we've talked on this podcast about the possibility that the Timbers are backsliding towards the middle of MLS, right? That, you know, they're being surpassed by these teams that are spending more money, but are also, you know, 
they have different leadership. They have different players, you know, through their system, different academy systems. I mean, it, there's a lot of different factors that, that lead to it, but having a coach who has a fresh voice, fresh ideas, um, and, and a record of winning in the past is something that I think can and should be the priority for, for the club going forward as they seek out somebody new. Um, you know, Miles Joseph is filling in as, as an interim assistant. Now we'll see how he performs and whether he makes the case for a, an internal promotion. But there have been a whole heck of a lot of internal promotions over the last few years for this club uh, on both sides, the Timbers and the Thorns. So I don't think there's an appetite for that from fans and, and, you know, whether that matters to to the front office or not remains to be seen. But in terms of maintaining that level of competitive quality, speaking obviously before Miles Joseph has a chance to make his own case, it seems like going outside and finding somebody with a serious track record, a proven winner to, to lead this club into the future as it sort of resets the roster goes a bit younger uh, certain guys age out and new ones come in finding somebody like that to, to return to that level that Gio was able to bring this team to before these last two seasons um, is crucial. And it's, and it's going to be the difference between backsliding toward the middle of MLS and continuing to compete even after the rule changes happen and the floodgates in all likelihood open up financially. I think this is I mean, now the hard part starts. <laughs> frankly, for for Ned Grabovoy and Mary Paulson. Now is the hard part. The you know, the the easy part, even though I'm sure it was emotionally very difficult, was sort of coming to this this truth that this just wasn't working anymore with Geo. And and they got there. Uh and but now this is gonna be a tricky hire. Frankly, I I think there's reason to have questions about how attractive the Timbers job is among MLS. Uh I I think it's not a hot take to say that it is not sort of among the premier jobs in the league anymore, certainly. And so, you know, that raises questions about who exactly they're going to get as, as candidates. I think you look back at the track record and I think you just alluded to this. They have hired for a lot of senior positions within the club, both on the Timbers and the Thorns side over the course of, of the last couple of years and they've gone almost exclusively with the exception of Jack Dodd, who's, you know, I mean, certainly a tier down from a from a head coaching hire. Uh, they've they've gone internal for all of them. And I think that gives rise to very reasonable questions about whether the club is able to attract top tier external talent to these kinds of roles. Now, I, I don't think it's fair to say that they absolutely cannot. I don't think we have the, the data, the ability to, to say that conclusively. But it at least gives rise to questions about that, right? Because if you're consistently hiring internally in circumstances where it seems like there would be a pretty powerful interest to be bringing in sort of fresh ideas to a lot of these senior positions, you're going to give rise to questions about whether whether you're getting and attracting the kind of external talent that would be competitive. And I think that very much carries over those questions very much carry over to this job. At the same time, they need to make this hire quickly. This and that's not something that they've done a great job of over the course of the last year or so, uh, certainly the hire of Dodd, uh, which dragged on for months and months, uh, comes to mind. But even promoting Ned Grabovoy into his full-time position from the interim job, uh, that took three or four months uh, from, from the time of Gavin Wilkinson's firing last fall. And, and so 
this isn't a situation where they can afford for that to happen because they're going to be relying on this new head coach to be able to exert a pretty significant amount of influence over the decisions, the many decisions, I'll emphasize, that need to be made over the course of this next offseason. And if you're not getting around to making that hire until December, it's not going to happen. And you're going to be coming into 2024 then with a roster that is either being assembled late, which we've seen the perils of this year, or that's just not assembled to fit the manager whom you just hired. And that's not a good position to be in. So the Timbers need to be looking to make this hire in the next couple of months before the offseason begins so that that person can be on board and can work directly with Grabovoy to make the moves necessary to get the roster in a place that the coach is comfortable with. And that's the position they find themselves in, uh, which is, you know, I mean, there have been a lot of names bandied about. Frankly, I think uh, I, I think the names that I've seen on Twitter hit both ends of the unrealistic spectrum. Uh, some folks have been speculating about Jason Christ. That's not going to happen. And if that happens, it would be a scandal. He's not a an MLS head coaching candidate at this point. And I don't think there's an MLS team who would hire him. As, as their head coach. And if the Timbers somehow are, you know, I mean, his success at, at Royal Salt Lake was a long, long, long time ago. And he has a number of failures between now and then. If that's the level that the Timbers are going to be at, and I don't think it is, that would be quite depressing uh, and not a good sign for the direction moving forward. Similarly, folks have been talking about, oh, maybe Jesse Marsh. Is the Timbers job attractive to Jesse Marsh? I mean, I'm sure that call is going to be made to, to Marsh. I would be surprised, frankly, if he was particularly interested simply because, I mean, this is a guy who is on sort of the national team radar, who has ambitions of of continuing to coach in Europe. I think there might be some MLS jobs that he would consider coming back to the States for, but are the Timbers one of those? I'd be surprised. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I think this is going to be a difficult search for the Timbers, and it's one that they're going to have to get right, and they're going to have to get it right sooner rather than later. And so it's a big job. It's a big, big job for Grabovoy and Paulson, uh, and and we'll see over the course of the next couple of months uh, whether and how they're able to pull it off. I did have somebody in the community, and this is this is purely and entirely speculative at this point. Uh, bring up the name Bob Bradley because uh, they claim that in July they spotted Bob Bradley at the Multnomah Whiskey Library in Portland. So that is maybe somebody that you could talk about in that sense, but who's to say that's, that's purely and completely speculative rumor. I I would expect that Bradley would be interested. I think you would want to take a very, very hard look at what happened at Toronto FC over the course of the last few years before deciding whether that's a good idea or not. Frankly, I, you know, I, I think, if I were to guess, uh, I, I think this is going to be a hire that the Timbers are likely going to make from sort of the assistant ranks within MLS. And there are some good, talented assistant coaches who are ready for uh, a shot at a head job. And you can find good coaches from in, in, in that way. And so, you know, that's not to say that, that the Timbers are not going to have uh, talented candidates. I think they very well may. But, you know, in, in terms of kind of the class of folks whom you would expect to be interested in this role and who are sort of realistic matchups, I think that's probably a, a good place to center uh, your expectations uh, in, in, in terms of who the next coach will be. Right. And 
you know, this isn't to to dismiss the idea of of Miles Joseph becoming the coach either. I, I think that you know fans would like to see somebody from the outside hired just simply because fresh face, fresh voice, fresh ideas. But um, you know, Miles Joseph has has a Class A coaching license. He's somebody that's been an assistant in MLS for almost a decade, and you know, if if he's able to to cobble together some strong results down the stretch with this group, given how poor things have gone this season, um, he will probably have made a good case for himself. And and you touched on the difficulty of um, potentially attracting people to this job, given everything that's gone on and, and swirled off field for this club in the last couple of years, uh, and and the issues that Gio himself faced in terms of not only roster build but uh, issues relating to players and, and locker room troubles. Um, there's, there's a lot there that makes it difficult. So it's definitely, I think a possibility that miles Joseph ends up being the person who gets this job. The question is, um, will, will he have done enough in these last 10 games to, to prove to people on the outside and even within the front office that he's the, the right type of guy. One thing that is, it is, inter- is interesting and, and that I don't think we have answers to. So I'll just sort of present it as, as an open question <laughs> at this point is it's notable that Carlos Yamosa did not get the interim job. Uh, we don't know whether Yamosa is staying on. Uh, I think there are reasonable questions about that. He is very, very close with Gio. He's kind of Gio's guy. And so it wouldn't be surprising and it would be natural, frankly, uh, in this instance, if he would also move on from the club with Gio's dismissal. But that that is certainly notable uh, because if you were to sort of go with the the next guy up, approach to the coaching job, he would have been it if he was going to be retained. And so I don't know that we have the answers to that yet. uh, But I think it's a it's a reasonable question about whether Yamosa will stick around and uh, who exactly will remain on staff for for Joseph in the interim. Got anything to say about that uh, 5-0 game in Houston other than what's already been said? Not competitive from the first minute. I mean, you know, folks, uh, I saw some folks talking about, you know, maybe it was the heat and that kind of stuff. Look, if the Timbers fought hard for 60 minutes and the game kind of overcame them in the last half hour as Houston was better able to manage those conditions, it would be one thing. And I think Gio would still be the head coach. They weren't competitive from the first minute of the game and they were down 3-0 by the 14th minute of the game that it was not competitive from the first minute. And I, I mean, that's just why we're here. Uh, it, it was it was a case of a team quitting. And, and just punting on a game that was, by the way, a really important game. It was an extremely important game that the Timbers had lots of time to prepare for. And the team just did not show up, period. And, and that's why Gio doesn't have a job anymore because of that. And I, I think there is a lot of responsibility to be had and a lot of questions to be asked about the professionalism of the players who did not show up from the first minute of the game. And I think... In addition, you know, obviously that that cost Gio his job. I think there are probably some players whose jobs it's going to cost as well under contract, obviously. But it wouldn't surprise me if there are some guys who we stop see getting selections and and who, frankly, we see moved on from over the course of of this winter, you know, because of the, the performance uh, this last weekend and, and performances like it. And one moment that that kind of got lost in the fray of that match uh, was was an injury, non-contact uh, to Yaroslav Nishkoda. He was obviously carted off the field. Uh, looked to be something knee hamstring related. We don't quite know the exact nature of his injury yet, and that sort of has also gotten lost in in the the noise uh, of of Gio's dismissal. Um, but that may well have been the final 
game for Yaroslav Nishkoda in a Timbers uniform, just given the the struggles, the lack of performance, the money that they've paid him. Uh, he's probably one of those guys that you're talking about that at this point uh, is, is likely to move on in the offseason. There is going to be a lot of movement, I think, this offseason for the Timbers. Uh, Ned has said so publicly. Uh, we're recording this podcast Tuesday morning at around 8.35 at, at this moment. Ned is speaking to the media later today uh, in a couple of hours. So I'm sure that that is front of mind for him. You know, the, the person that they end up hiring, how they fit into his plan for the off season, how they can work together collaboratively to, to build out this roster and, and make a lot of changes because frankly, um, not only has has Gio's voice maybe gotten stale for, for this group over the last couple of years, but the roster itself has has run its course. And with minimal changes in the last couple of years beyond the additions of Juan Mosquera and Evander, who both, I think, are difference maker caliber players, but have, at least this season, not necessarily lived up to, to those billings uh, in a lot of games, particularly Evander, who I think, uh, you know, if if you could point to players who may might have been lacking effort level and not even close to good enough. Yeah. Not yeah, even close. not good enough. And yeah. and frankly, like, so I think I said literally last week on the pod that he will be back for 2024 and that's probably right. But his performances are, if these continue, that's a question that's going to have to be asked because it hasn't even been close to good enough from Evander. And maybe he's sort of part of, you know, losing the locker room and those kinds of things. And he's going to have 10 games to prove that he's, he's worth continuing the investment, the Timbers investment in him. But what we've seen from him over the course of the last six weeks or so, not even close. And the club is investing a lot in him and invested a lot in terms of a transfer fee. And it's, it's paying him an awful lot in, 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 in wages. And he hasn't come even close to living up to his end of the bargain over the course of the last couple of months. And if that doesn't change, I think that's going to be a, a question for the offseason. Right. And and he's somebody that, you know, this this is becoming a question and becoming something that people are talking about, despite the fact that he is the engine through which their their attack has had success. But I think that says a lot more about the lack of success that the attack has had than maybe the the individual greatness and difference making that, that Evander has had. I, I think that there have been signs of visible improvement um, in in spurts this season, especially, you know, the connection that he has had with Frank Boley and other players. But um, beyond that, I just it, you know, it, it has definitely felt underwhelming given the investment and next this next 10 games is going to be big, like you said, for him and going into next year, next year's even bigger. It's it's a show me year for Evander, regardless of, of who the next it's a show me 10 is. games for Evander. I mean, the, yeah. the bottom line is right now he's costed him more than he's contributing. You know, I mean, for for every spectacular free kick. Now we're recently at, at two horrific giveaways, including one that that set up the penalty uh, in what was it? The third minute uh, in Houston, a horrific giveaway deep in the timber zone end. And that is not the first time. In fact, it is very seriously not the first time that we've seen that from Evander recently. And the effort's not there, and and he's costing him more right now than he's contributing. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I think I agree. Twenty twenty four is going to be a show me year if he returns, but these next ten games are a show me ten games for Evander. 
Because if this is what the Timbers can expect from Evander going forward, they should cut ties with him over the course of the winter. They should find a way to move him out because he's it's too much money. It's too much cap space. It's too much of a DP spot to give to a guy who's going to cost you more than he's going to contribute. And that's what he's doing right now. Yeah, I think that that's that's a, a fair assessment. I, I do think that it would be pretty unlikely, even if he has a rough finish to the season, that you know, given the money they spent on that transfer fee, I'd be hard pressed to to see Ned Grabovoy and Merritt Paulson sort of you know do a one eighty on on that just because of the investment, just because of the hype that they've put into him. I tend to agree. But at some point, when is it when is it good money after bad? I mean, and 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 I think that's that's what he has to show over the course of these next ten games. And look, a failed move like this is really bad for a guy's career. And Evander has ambitions of, and frankly, has the aptitude to achieve and accomplish bigger things than the Portland Timbers over the course of his career. But if this move fails, that is a difficult future to see. Yeah, and we're talking about a very different direction for him in terms of the next Absolutely. move, rather than. Than you know the one that he has in mind, which obviously is you know maybe somewhere in Italy or or moving in into to the Spanish league or or to England or or something something that is a, a step up from MLS that that is you know a big transfer fee a, a big chunk of change a good bit more than ten million is the hope obviously from the Timbers so they can make a profit on on this situation but also because that's why you bring in these big players, right? Is, is to develop them, have them be one of your stars, uh, and, and then flip them, flip them elsewhere. And where the Timbers have gone wrong in the last couple of years is that they have held on too long to situations that weren't working. We just talked about it with Gio. <laughs> We've talked about it a lot with Yaroslav Nishgoda. Uh, I think there's there are a few conversations to be had uh, in terms of the Timbers doing that with with players as well. And if they're learning from these things, then they very well could be in a, in a mood over the course of this winter to look at a situation like Evander, if he doesn't show anything over the course of these next 10 games and say, are we at risk of doing that again? And if a new coach comes in, looks at his performances over the course of the second half of 2023 and says, no, thank you. I think the Timbers could be in a spot where they'd say, all right, we need to, we need to move on. We don't want to put good money after bad here. And we need to move on to give this new coach the roster that they need to be successful. There wasn't a whole lot of resilience shown on the field by the Portland Timbers on Sunday, but you know who did show a whole heck of a lot total of resilience other the and toughness, total opposite end of the spectrum were the Portland Thorns who threw smoky skies and a dog. So red card and a really difficult situation against the top team previously in NWSL. The Thorns pull out a 2-1 win over the North Carolina Courage with 10 players for almost 75 minutes of the game. Probably the best performance in an individual game, regardless of circumstance, that I have seen from the Thorns in the last two years. And this is a team that won the championship last season. Obviously, amazing moments like Crystal Dunn's game-winning goal against San Diego, the championship victory, other key wins under Rian Wilkinson and and Mike Norris, but signature win for for Mike Norris and these players and and the resilience shown to to fight through the the ten person situation to make the tactical changes needed to to hold off North Carolina as much as they could. You know, I, I see that moment with the Hubley red card as, as sort of the axis that the game could have shifted a really bad way and. You know, they gave up a goal right after it. It was a free kick that 
resulted from Hubley's foul that led to the goal that didn't initially look like a goal, but you know, bounced off the underside of the crossbar. Very clear on replay that it bounced off the turf inside the goal. Um, they're down 1-0, and Hannah Betford, who has been phenomenal the last few weeks for the Thorns and is somebody who I think is indispensable as a substitute when you have uh, Sophia Smith out there as, as your primary striker. Um, heck, player up top with Soph. See, see what the two of them can create together with Morgan Weaver, Hina Sugita when she gets back. Who knows? But Hannah Betford scores that goal ties at one, one. And then in the second half, Sophia Smith comes on and doesn't even take 10, 20 seconds before she puts the ball in the back of the net. Uh, a, a very statement goal, let's say to not only the NWSL that I am back, but perhaps to the national team that, Hey, look at me. I'm a striker. I am unstoppable when I am on and she's the MVP. I, I it would be very surprising for me if, in these last six games, even if she doesn't perform at the same level as she has to this point, which I think she will. Um, it'd be surprising to me if she didn't win MVP, regardless of where the thorns finish in the table. And and now they're back at the top of the table. This was a huge, huge result for them with 16 games to go four against, you know, the, the teams that are currently in the playoffs. Uh, it's, it's a seriously big result and, and a virtuoso performance from the thorns who, you know, could very easily have have laid down, and and nobody would have faulted them for losing a game like that, or even drawing a game like that, considering the circumstance. You know, the I mean, unbelievable performance from the Thorns, and it was, I mean, in in basically every capacity. I thought the central midfield, and I thought the double pivot, which was new, uh, between uh, Sam Coffey and Rocky Rodriguez. I think I thought they were incredible in this game. Basically erased the player disadvantage that they had because they were so, so good in pushing Carolina out of dangerous areas in the attack. I mean, Carolina had very few chances after going up a player. Very few. And it's not like the Thorns had a ton because obviously they're playing a player down. They really had to choose their spots to attack uh, and to commit numbers into the attack. But the way that midfield sees control of the game, Olivia Moultrie is really good as well. Uh, I, I thought more on the creative side, although she put in the kind of really honest two-way work that you need uh, when you go down a player like that. But I, I thought in the in sort of the creative side, uh, Moultrie was very good uh, in helping them sort of capitalize on the opportunities to attack that they had. And I thought Morgan Weaver's work rate and quality and dangerousness uh, over the course of the game was, was exceptional. But they, I mean, for me, the sort of the central nugget, the core, the nucleus of that phenomenal performance was the work that Rocky and Coffee did to lock down central midfield and to make it so that the Thorns not only could defend well, but could attack uh, out of that spot. And then you bring Sophia Smith in off the bench, right? Best player in the country. I agree with you. A now you know, an increasingly runaway MVP candidate who, if her form continues over the course of the regular, the rest of the regular season, I think will be a, you know, it's not quite a ride into Paris for her, uh, for MVP, but it, it's the, the more good games like that, sh- that she has, that's going to become that. And so the, to be able to bring a, a match winner in like that, in the late stages of, of a game and have her immediately win the match, that that's awesome. 
And but the overall performance, I I just don't have the words. It was phenomenal. And uh, you know, I think you're exactly right that the the dog so red, which we still haven't seen a good replay on, so I don't want to jump up and down on it because we just don't have you know the ability to assess it fairly. But that was the the real access point, and the the thorns sort of weathered a little bit of the storm in the 10 minutes or so after that. But they figured it out. They got the tactics right. They were really smart about making sure they were picking their spots to attack. And then when they did, and when the chances came, and there weren't a ton of them, but when they did come, they made the most of them. And and credit to Hannah Bedford, phenomenal first touch on a nice pass from Moultrie. Unbelievable first touch to put the ball in front of her. And then just a a, a finish with a plum. Uh, to to silence the doubters, uh, who I previously was among, uh, consider me silenced in terms of my Hannah Bedford doubt. Oh, and, and there just aren't enough words. Uh, just top to bottom, unbelievably good performance from the Thorns. Uh, I hope that we keep we keep seeing that double pivot going forward because I think that is, as we saw, a much more stable defensive structure for the Thorns. Uh, and if they can stabilize their defensive structure, uh, they have plenty of talent in the attack to go get the goals that they need to get. And uh, and I, I think we saw that uh, in this game, even down a player, that they still had plenty of talent to go get the goals that they needed to get. Uh, and they were really, really difficult for one of the best teams in the league to break down, even though the Thorns were playing down a player. So. Great job to everybody, absolutely all around. Uh, I think Mike Norris, we we asked a lot of questions about the tactics of the team uh, going through the early parts of the summer and coming into the World Cup period. We didn't know whether they were going to be able to sort of solve the problems that just naturally come up over the course of a season. And I think this was a very strong first data point. And it's just the first data point. There need to be more. But it was a very strong first data point that, yes, they do have the sort of tactical noose uh, within the coaching staff and within the players to solve those kinds of problems. Uh, and if that's the case, look out, you know, then, then yeah. they, we're, we, we had our conversation last week about, uh, about these next then seven, now six games deciding whether this, you know, being sort of a decision point as to whether this is going to be a dynasty or a flop. And if they're able to solve those tactical problems, it's looking a lot closer to the dynasty end of the spectrum than the flop end. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this this result rests on the shoulders of those players who put in a, a really strong performance and and the word resilient keeps coming to mind. It, it's resilience has almost become a cliche with this team, right, with how much they have you know, overcome on and off the field in the last two years uh, to, to achieve greatness and to to be the best team in NWSL. Um their goal differential blows everybody else out of the water this year. They are in a tight table, but but they're a team that, you know, to me, on paper and and through results is is the favorite to to repeat. And it, it definitely is credit to Mike Norris for for this performance as well. And and I don't think that, yeah, either of us have really given him a, enough credit in in recent weeks. But, you know, those questions were valid. He's he's a new coach with no previous experience. There were issues tactically that they had throughout the year that I think led to a lot of their leaky defensive performances to their struggles. You know, we talked a lot about Sam coffee being left on an Island, Emily Mangus being left on an Island. There, there were some really sketchy moments earlier in this season, whether the world cup players were there or not. 
now getting all these star players back, they're all hungry. They've all got chips on their shoulders. No bigger than the chip on Sophia Smith's a Rocky mountain sized chip on her shoulder <laughs> in in this last stretch Show of the season so. after what happened. Show oh yeah. She, and she is my God. She does not need us to tell her, believe me, she, she, she knows it and, and has that motivation. And, and, you know, when you've got somebody like that, irrespective of the rest of this roster, which I think is is near flawless in terms of its construction, when you've got somebody like that, that level of individual greatness, it just makes watching these games that much more fun for for the neutral, for the fans, especially twenty two thousand people showing up with on a smoky Sunday quality. night. Yeah, yeah, like that is indicative of of what is so special about the soccer culture in this town, particularly with the Thorns. Um, this, this is definitely something that Mike Norris should be proud of the adjustments he was willing to make to pull Christine Sinclair, a legend of the sport, some, somebody that people consider the goat to pull her off the field in the 22nd minute after that, uh, that red card sent Hubley off to get Megan Nally in there as, as the fourth defender. Sink was not happy about that, but it was and, the move and, that needed to be you know, needed she, to be made. Yeah, Sink she, is the luxury was, player in she, that lineup, and and he needed to 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 get his blocks of four back. Yeah, he made the right move, and and it was a, a risk, but that but not really a risk at the same time. Like it paid off uh, strongly in their ability to to contain North Carolina for the rest of that game. Mike actually even let slip in in the post game press conference that you know they felt they were in control of the game. And then he was like, Oh, well maybe not in control, but you know, we were able to manage. They were in control. They were, they were, they were in control by the second, especially by the end of the first half and into the second half, they were in control of that game, which is, you know, it proves the correctness of, uh, of the move he made to get Nally into the game and to sacrifice, unfortunately, because sync was good in those first 15 minutes. She had a couple really nice through balls. It looked like the thorns were really on the front foot of the game. Uh, until until the dogs are red happened, uh, but it, it proves the correctness of that move, and it proves the the as you as you put it resilience of the, of, of the players and the intelligence of the coaching staff and, and the players and figuring out the tactical problems that come from that that come from losing a player. And look, North Carolina was doing all the right things. They were looking to hold the ball deep and to play big switches. Those are exactly the kinds of things you want to do when you're a player up because they expose the flanks which is where you're most likely to get the player advantage. And they, they were getting their fullbacks in, in, into the attack. They were doing all of those things. They were doing the textbook things that you do to try to take advantage of having a player up. And it didn't matter because the thorns were all over it. And so, you know, I, I, I think that they, they pushed all the right buttons and, and that's really, really hard to do. There's a reason why it wasn't an irrational thought. If you thought like I did after Tyler Lucy put that goal in nice free kick, by the way, uh, to an old friend, really nice uh, old friend, don't have to do that against the thorns. Just, just let's stay friends, but yes. really nice goal from Tyler Lucy, by the way, but the, you were not wrong. If you like me thought in that moment, this is probably over <laughs> a goal down a player down. This is probably over. Yeah. With 75 minutes, with 75 to minutes to yeah. play against a really freaking good team. <laughs> the North Carolina courage are legit. And even though they were, they were missing a couple players like the thorns were, they are still legit. And that's why this is, this was, you know, I agree with you. One of the best performances that I've seen in, in Thorne's history, but actually the, the quote that from the post-game press conference that most stuck out to me was from the most powerful person in Portland soccer right now. And that's Sophia Smith, who is indisputably the most powerful person in Portland soccer right now. 
And it was when she sort of went out of her way to say that she loves playing here. And as she was saying that, I was basically screaming, give her what she wants. (laughs) Give her anything she wants. (laughs) Anything (laughs) she asks for, give it to her. (laughs) Because the Thorns urgently need to lock her down to an extension. And as we're talking about dynasties, this is something as we've talked about before, this is a now problem. This isn't something that they can put off for a few months. This is a now thing that they need to do, maybe even before the Timbers hire a new coach. But because of where Sophia Smith is in her contract with one year remaining, she is the most powerful person in Portland soccer. And in how she was talking, it certainly at least sounded to me like she was open to the idea of staying here for longer than just the end of this season or just the end of next season. And if that's the case, give her what she wants. So because, look, I mean, there are going to be players that have to change in Portland over the course of the next few years because of just Christine Sinclair, where Crystal Dunn is in her career, where uh, and her contract, by the way, uh, where Becky Sauerbrunn is in, in, in the course of her career. There are going to be some changes in the Thorns team over the course of the next few years. If your core remains people like Sophia Smith and Sam Coffey and Morgan Weaver, you're going to be able to make those navigate those changes because you have a dynasty core. So that was in the post-game press conference the most interesting moment for me. Because if she is open to staying here, give her what if she wants a training facility, give her a training facility. Whatever Soph says, Soph gets. Get that contract done <laughs> and get it done now. Yeah, I I, I thought about that too dur- during that match when she came on immediately and scored. I was like, this this is a next level type of person, right? Somebody that comes around once in a generation in a sport and at 23 years old has already ascended to the level of being one of the best players in the world. And in your words, the best player in the country. I think it's time for the NWSL to be creative in the ways that MLS was in bringing in a player at the tail end of their career, who is uh, of that caliber in his sport. And, and that is Lionel Messi be creative with this contract. I, I think that, you know, yeah, run Soph the max, give her the most amount of money that is allowed under the collective bargaining agreement between the league and its players association. But I think she is somebody that it is worth going further with. She is somebody that you need to talk about, you know, tying in endorsement deals with that. You need to talk about making as part of her contract, you know, apparel and TV deal money and potentially future ownership stake in the team, particularly given that the thorns are about to change owners in the next few months. And yeah, that, that in, might be a difficult next one to, year. to sort out right now in particular, but <laughs> yes. And she's very young. So, you know, maybe that waits until later in her career, but these are the things I think need to be part of the conversation. Yes. The extension has to happen. Yes. It has to be the absolute max you are allowed to give her uh, under salary rules but there's got to be a whole heck of a lot of bonuses in there for somebody like this, because not only do you want to secure that uh, that contract and make sure that she stays here, make sure that next year is not played as a contract year for the best. Absolutely player cannot be sell. They, like, yeah, it, it, you can't you can't let that happen. So I, I, I believe they don't get an extension done in the next few months. Yes. And I believe that Karina LeBlanc is hard at work at, on this, you know, behind the scenes and, and has had these discussions with Sophia's management. And I believe it will happen. The question is, what does it look like? And how does it reflect what Soph has meant to this club already? 
She's somebody that you can categorize as a club legend, despite this only really being her second year of consistent and primary contribution. Both of these years, by the way, likely will end up with her being the MVP of the league. Keep her around, man. Don't don't let her be tempted by this, you know, oh, let me go play in Europe and and get some money tossed at me by the the endless pockets of of Chelsea ownership. Don't don't let her go somewhere else in NWSL where, you know, they they are willing to be more creative than you are with her contract and and what she deserves as a player. This has got to be a huge priority. And we, we've talked about this before. And it's not just her. You know, you, you want to keep Morgan Weaver around. Uh, she's somebody that I'm sure other teams are licking their chops thinking, oh, man, does does Portland have, you know, enough resources to keep her around with Soph, with Sam Coffey, with these other players? They're have space. With the with the with these yeah. other players who are going to be coming off the 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 books over the course of the next few years, they're going to have space. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is fairly simple. The driving principle of these negotiations and finishing them is what Soph wants. Soph gets. That's it. No doubt. And and if and yeah. if the Thorns or the league aren't willing to give Soph what Soph wants, then one of the best players in the world is going to deservedly leave the league. And so they should they should be willing to give Soph what Soph wants. What Soph wants, Soph gets. And the league is in a different place than it was at a time when Sam Kerr left, too. You know, like there is so much more money and investment and futures for this league in terms of finances than than there were at that time. Um, there is more leeway, I think, to be creative, particularly given that a new TV contract is going to be negotiated in the coming years and months. Um, you know, it's 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 gotta be creative that's that's my perspective on it um and and she deserves that so i i'm i'm excited to see what that looks like when that potentially happens and i think it would be a collective and enormous sigh of relief on the part of thorns fans to know that that she's locked in for the next few years um, ain't no dynasty without even if self. yeah ain't no dynasty without so and and even if she's locked up and you know three years from now she wants to go on loan somewhere for, for a year by that three years, maybe you've won four championships with Sophia Smith and she's got a couple more MVPs under her belt. Any and all of that is not possible. If, if you don't lock her in beyond the 2024 season, what Soph wants, Soph gets get it done. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the thorns, we have Janine Becky on today as a guest. Uh, my conversation with her will be coming up after the break here, but that'll wrap it up for Chris and I today on our discussions on everything PTFC. Thank you, Chris, as always, for uh, your analysis, for your candor on these subjects. Appreciate it. It's a weird time. Once again, things are never simple. They're never easy. They seem always to be pretty complicated around this club over the last couple of years, but uh, we've navigated through it all. So after this break, we'll have Janine Becky on to chat about the World Cup, about the, the greatness of Sophia Smith and her other teammates and uh, how her recovery is going, everything else. Uh, so stick around. Thanks for joining us. And we're back on Soccer Made in Portland, joined today by a special guest, Portland Thorns and Canada national team star Janine Becky. Janine, uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you taking the time and and happy to have your analysis uh, today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
For sure. Um, let's just start with with a question that a lot of folks, you know, in the Portland soccer community have been asking. Uh, how are you doing? How, how's the recovery going for you? Uh, you know, mentally and physically, obviously, it's a big challenge to come back from this type of injury. Um, how, how are you doing? Well, I appreciate everyone's concern and interest in how I'm doing. That's very nice. Um, I'm doing really well. Things are coming along uh, on time. We're being a little bit more conservative with my return just because we have deemed this as a season-ending season injury, so there's really no rush for me to get back um, and enforce coming back sooner than I should. So I would say I'm probably a little bit over halfway there, um, maybe just about halfway back to what would be considered 100%. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm going to start running here in the next couple of weeks, which is a big milestone. And I'll be working hard in the off season and ready to hit the ground running come next preseason. Well, congratulations on that milestone. That's an exciting moment for anybody to, to finally get back to the business of, of running and, and doing all the things that soccer players love to hate to love to do, I guess. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is weird to think that the one thing that we have to do relatively consistently, I have not done in five months. So uh, it's definitely going to be interesting. But thank you. It's definitely a big milestone. So I'm uh, looking forward to continuing the progress. And, you know, through this process, you, you've done a lot of your recovery here in, in Portland. I'm wondering, um, you know, how your Thorns teammates have, have supported you through the process and, and what they've been like. Unfortunately, this is an injury that a lot of my teammates have experience with, and that seems to be pretty common in the women's soccer community. So from that point, uh, it's nice to have people around that understand what I'm going through and have been there themselves. But this team has been incredibly important in my recovery, more so from a mental standpoint than than physically. They're obviously incredibly encouraging. Uh, we have an, an insane staff behind the scenes who I've worked with very closely um, from our, you know, our athletic training team to our physical therapist to our sports scientist and um, performance coaches. So I'm really lucky to be at a club that, you know, takes those things really seriously and has a performance staff that operates at the highest level. Um, and then to have a locker room of the type of people that we do with the thorns, it's just always a really positive environment to be in. It's a environment where people operate um, at the highest level and are, you know, just high performers in general. So it's really encouraging and motivating to be that type of environment and still feel like I'm part of a team that's chasing another championship. So um, yeah, it's definitely pushing me to want to be back on the field. It's really hard to be on the sidelines and watch a team as talented as ours and not be able to be a part of that this season. But um, yeah, I mean, I've learned so much. There's been so much perspective uh, and this team just keeps me really positive. Right. And you know, that, that result on, on Sunday, I think is indicative of a lot of what you are talking about in terms of the togetherness and, and the, in many ways, resilience of, of this group, um, you know, to, to lose Hubley in, in the, 14th or so minute with a, with a dog. So red card, um, and, and to come back and win that game two one after going down one zip right after that. Um, you know, what, what was your perspective on, on that incredible night in front of 22,000 in, in Portland? It's funny because I've been on the bench in those kind of situations before I've been on the field in those kind of situations, but I haven't been watching like so removed from my team in that kind of situation. So it was new for me and it was myself, you know, Becky Zarbon and Crystal Dunn were all sitting next to each other up in the suite watching the game. And we were just like trying to figure out what the rules were 
because the rules have changed so much. We're like, okay, so if it's a penalty, does she get a yellow card? And then he goes to the video review board and it's all, all of a sudden a red card. And we were like, what is happening? And then they score on the free kick. It wasn't a penalty. Everyone was confused by that. And it was just like a this double whammy of like crap for our team. And so you're just sitting there like so helpless. Um, and it just like I feel so bad for Kelly because she's obviously such an important part of our team. And she was just so disappointed to have, uh, you know, she really felt like she let the team down. But it's just so funny because, you know, like I've never had a red card in my career, knock on wood. And she was like, I just really thought I was never going to get one. And I was like, I feel like that's what everybody thinks. And then you think like, oh, I've let the team down so much. And um, at the end of the day, people are just like, it's, it is what it is, like not let down. But yeah, she's just such a pillar of our team. And then to watch the team just absolutely crush it for the rest of the game with 10 players, like this team is definitely got a flair for the dramatic. We like to make things interesting. So maybe that's why we have so many fans because people are just like, you never know what you're going to get when you go to a Thorns game. Uh, And, you know, to, to have made more history this weekend being, uh, the first team to get a red card in the first half and and win the game is, I think it just speaks to the character and resilience in this group. Uh, and it's something that's so deeply instilled in the players that we have on this team. So yeah, I'm not sure there's a lot of teams that could have done what we did and really truly dominate the game with 10 players. And, you know, a big, big part of, of, you know, the next few weeks for the Thorns is going to be reintegrating the World Cup players. Um, you know, Sink is back from team Canada. You've got Sophia Smith and crystal Dunn returning Becky Sauerbrunn, who would have been at the world cup were it not for her injury, working her way back. Um, you know, Hina's coming back Rocky's back and she was huge on Sunday night as, as many people have pointed out. Um, you know, just, just your thoughts on, on bringing those folks back after such an emotional and intense tournament and one that, you know, you know, you know the, the feeling of coming back from a big tournament and, and having those physical and mental tolls to, to work through. Uh, what, what's, yeah. what's that going to be like? Yeah, I've seen both sides of it now. It was really strange to be here during a major tournament where, bar my injury, I hope that I would have been in Australia with the team. But to have been back here and see how the team operated without those players, I just have to give so much credit to the staff and the players that were here because they really um, took the pressure and – you know, had some difficult performances and difficult results, but really stuck together. And for players that maybe didn't see as many minutes when those players were here at the beginning of the season to be called upon immediately and be asked to have an impact that quickly is really difficult as an athlete. Um, And it's really difficult to kind of give yourself that confidence that all of a sudden you're going to be called upon to perform for this team. And this team has really high expectations. I think that's why we're so successful because we're not content with losing or dropping points at any any point in the season so I was really proud to see the work that the team that was here put in but there's absolutely no no doubt that getting these players back has been so important for us you said it Rocky was amazing on Sunday she just brings so much composure and experience to the midfield and I thought she was really really key in that game and then you know just a weird strange turn of events for sync um, you know, unfortunately it had to be her to come off to put another defender on. Uh, and I know she probably wasn't happy with that situation, but she's such a team player. I'm sure she was screaming her head off on the bench. Um, and then you look at someone like Soph, who it's just like, 
it's inevitable. She's inevitable that she's just going to come in and make that kind of difference. And um, I think she needed that from a confidence perspective. It's really difficult to come into a high performance environment right off the back of major tournament disappointment, let alone Soph's first major tournament. So to have her back like that and for her to score literally on her second touch of her return is exactly what she needed. And I think it's just going to springboard her for the rest of the season. Um, we hope to see Hina really soon. Everybody knows what she brings to the team. Uh, and then you have Crystal and Becky who are just like, they speak for themselves, just leaders, veterans, people with so much experience and who are both so important to this team. So I hope that both of them are back on the pitch as soon as possible. But yeah, safe to say we're all very happy to have um, all of them back. And I'm really looking forward to seeing this team, you know, push towards the end of the season. We we have that number one spot. It's ours to lose now. So I hope that the team really can hold on to that and, and perform, you know, with 11 players uh, as well as they did on Sunday for the rest of the season. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in pursuit now of a, a second consecutive championship and, and something sync mentioned before the season is wanting to be, you know, shield winners and repeat champions. That would be the first time that that's happened in the history of this club, obviously would be a, a dynasty definer potentially for, for this group. Um, you know, your, your thoughts on team Canada after this world cup, uh, obviously sync and Rocky were the first two players to, to return. And, and that was a, a group stage exit for both of them. Um, what was your perspective on, on what Canada might've been missing in that group stage and, and, you know, the difficulty of advancing in a tournament like that. It was just such a wild tournament from start to finish. And I think we felt, I know I felt watching from a distance, just like super heavy with that early of an exit. But when you look at the tournament in general, it was just like this mass exodus of top ranked teams way sooner than anyone would have expected them to leave. And on one hand, it's obviously incredibly disappointing to see, you know, my team bow out so early, but also, what an incredible kind of showing for women's soccer that the gap has closed so much between teams that even back in 2019, it was more of a really dominant group of teams. And then kind of that second tier group who would give some teams some challenges, but for the most part, those, those higher ranked teams had those performances pretty much nailed down and we're just not seeing that anymore. And I think that that's really exciting like I said, obviously disappointing that it, it affected my team the way that it did. But, you know, it's hard for me to comment on that because I wasn't there. I don't know what was going on in the background. You never it's a sim similarly to the U.S. I think a lot of people will speak to, you know, what they think went wrong or but no one really knows unless you're in the environment what's going on, you know, what's going on with individual players. What do they have going on in their lives? And then we had quite a few you know, younger players who are relied upon in a way that they maybe haven't before. And that's difficult for, for everyone. And I really do think it was just like, I just felt like it was so uncharacteristic of our team to um, obviously exit that soon, but to have some of the difficulty that we did, and I'll be really interested in the coming months, you know, hopefully getting re reintegrated back into the team to kind of, you know, learn what, what was going on, you know, learn from the tactical footage and really look at it and dissect it. I know our staff has already begun that process of, of watching those games and looking at what could be different and whether it's, you know, it wasn't the right formation for that group of players or 
Um, you know, whether it was individual performances that maybe weren't good enough, I really don't know. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really, really hard for me to watch. Um, just, you know, they could have won all three games and been brilliant and it would have still been really hard for me to watch. So, uh, it is what it is. I think it's a group of people who are so dedicated and will already be looking forward and a lot, like you said, are already back in their club environments, getting back to it. And we've got two really important games coming up in just about a month's time to qualify for, for Paris in 2024. So yeah, I mean, it's no rest for the weary, right? Like we just got to get on with it and get back to it. And um, I'm excited to hopefully be back in the environment and have a bit more of an influence than I was allowed, was able to in this world cup. Right. And I think you touched on something really important in that, you know, a lot of people talk about the growth of the game in terms of popularity when they when they discuss women's soccer. But it seems that, you know, this World Cup in particular showcased that the quality and the parity of, of the game globally is on an uptick as well. Um, you know, what do you attribute or to what do you attribute that kind of sea change that's happening in the sport where all these new teams are, are becoming contenders or pulling these upsets and, and sort of changing the landscape? Yeah, I mean, Spain's probably the perfect example of that. They've been so dominant on the youth level the past couple of years. You know, I don't know if it was the under 15 or 17. You know, they won two youth World Cups, the last two youth World Cups. And then some of those players have now fed into their senior team. You look like someone at someone like Salma uh, Pariello, who was absolutely incredible in this World Cup, scored two winning goals in the knockout rounds at just 19 years old. And I think what we're seeing is players all around the world getting to this level and being successful on this level younger. So, I mean, you look at someone like Sophia Smith, she just turned 23, which is insane, has already had so much experience at the national team level, maybe not at major tournaments, but she's been on the team for a long time. She's been playing on the team for a long time and is finding so much, so much success in the club game already at such a young age. And then you look around the world at someone, you know, like Lauren Hemp, who is still so young, but is having such a big influence on the game. And I would attribute that to investment for sure, which we still have a long way to go. But a lot of these countries and clubs are investing in players younger to develop them. Um, And then I think it's, it's about, you know, women's players truly believing that this is a, sport that should be operating at, you know, this level, at the professional level, there's opportunity around the world for females to be playing professionally younger more than ever before. Um, And I think it's such an interesting and sometimes really frustrating parallel because we're seeing like so much excitement and so much more investment and like the most viewers, the most attended World Cup, like probably the, like definitely the most competitive World Cup, yet we still have so, so far to go. And so you know, whether I'm feeling pessimistic or optimistic, it changes day to day about uh, women's soccer. There's, it's definitely, um, you know, after that World Cup, I'm definitely feeling more optimistic than I ever have. So I think the conversation needs to stay really at the forefront of people's minds and about investment and how, you know, women's soccer is the place to invest right now. Um, And if there hasn't been enough evidence of that, then I don't think people paying attention. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you said it, you know, the, the platform is growing for other nations to, to speak out on these issues of equity in the way that the U S women's national team sort of 
trailblazed initially with their fight for equal pay. Um, obviously, Canada is at the forefront of, of those discussions. Spain uh, and Jamaica, just to name a few. I mean, what what do you make about how that landscape is shifting and maybe the increased focus and, and pressure that now exists publicly on federations to to create equitable conditions and invest in the game? It's a tough time to be a sporting federation in women's soccer, to be honest. And I think what's amazing is that players are finally calling out federations for maybe, you know, in some cases, mistreatment, in some cases, lack of fair treatment, and in some cases, just historical absence of treatment, to be honest. I think it really ranges depending on what federation you're talking about. I mean, everybody's seen the Spanish federation in the news in the last couple of days, which is so utterly disgusting what's going, you know, what happened. And I really, you know, I feel for those players and I really hope that, you know, the governing, whoever is, you know, some of it is involving head people at the Federation, but I really hope those that have influence step in and make that right because it's, that was so wrong what happened and what continues to happen in that Federation. And it's pretty amazing that they were able to, to win a world cup with all of that going on. But I think you said it, the U.S. trailblazed this conversation and those players, you know, I get, I have the pleasure of, you know, sitting next to one of them in the locker room and Becky Sauerbrunn and just some of the conversations that her and I have had just about how a lot of things that they did in their fight for equal pay have encouraged and have encouraged myself and those working on that from a Canadian perspective and just giving examples of, Oh, you guys did this. And, and we use that as an example. And in this case, and I think what it's created is such an incredible community in women's soccer, where we all know exactly what it's like to have this fight and to feel the impact of the lack of funding or the impact in the mistreatment or seeing our men's teams get certain things Um, and you know, it's the same thing. Sometimes I'm really optimistic. Sometimes I'm pessimistic. You have so, there's so many trolls out there that are just like, well, how much money do you make? And I'm like, come on guys. Like, look at, look at this world cup. Look at what the, the revenue generated was. And it's almost like people expect that to, to happen overnight and it just doesn't happen overnight. And so I think, this is one of those things that unfortunately we're still in that space as women's soccer players where we're having to do the fighting. And like I said, we are, we've created such an amazing community where players all around the world feel so inspired and empowered to have this fight in their own federations. And like I said, it's a tough, it's a tough time to be a federation because you have players who feel empowered to stand up for themselves and speak up for themselves and what they need to be successful. And I hope that federations that maybe weren't as successful at this World Cup will wake up and say, we need to invest in in these players. We need to invest in the youth. And for those that were successful, I hope they still look and say, what more can we be doing to help our players? And what can we continue to do to make sure that our team gets to this same place come the next major tournament? And if all those federations are having that kind of growth mindset and what more can we do, I think really the game's only going to continue to grow. Right. And, you know, this is a, a battle being waged on on two simultaneous fronts for, for players, right? It's, it's, you know, fighting both labor fights and against cultural 
deep-seated misogynistic attitudes for not only people that are in positions of power, but who are, you know, fans of the sport, who are, you know, outsiders or people with influence. Um, and I think that that's something that maybe most fans might not fully grasp yet, although there are many who are extremely vocal in their support um, for the players and, and their continued fight to for just equal treatment at the at the very base level and then beyond that a much greater investment in, in the sport that, that players believe they deserve um, the the Spain thing is interesting to me and unfortunate in so many ways because it's it's not only leadership dismissing player concerns on an on an institutional level but also engaging in this bizarre and misogynistic behavior in a public setting which I think it is drawing a lot of attention to these issues, but should not be the only time people pay attention to this, right? I mean, these, these are these are labor concerns first and foremost, but also simultaneously ones of of cultural acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, those two things live in parallel in a lot of these circumstances, and you know, I you have to give credit to fans in this space, fans that choose to be vocal about their support of us in this fight. And thank you to all of those people, because it's so encouraging to see voices speak up that probably in the past would have been discouraged to do so. Um, and to face all of the still what seem to be so many voices trying to drown out this fight. And so thank you to all of those people who continue to vocally share their support. But it's just it's just so bizarre to me because you have people at the top of the Spanish Federation doing these things at a point in the tournament where the most eyes are on you. And not to say that that should ever be dismissed behind closed doors, but imagine what's happening behind closed doors. If someone's willing to do that in front of a World Cup final audience like it just it absolutely blows my mind that there was any comment that that was a normal gesture or that there wasn't you know like I just can't imagine how uncomfortable that made players feel um in the most what should be the most celebrated moments of their careers and so I really hope that those players were able to to and continue to celebrate that properly um but this needs to be handled as it should you know an apology is not good enough um, and yeah, it's just really, really unfortunate that that moment happened in, you know, in the midst of a world, you know, a team winning the world cup. So it's one of those things where I'm glad that so many eyes were on it to see it and to not like to just express how utterly terrible that is. Um, but I also feel really, really sad for those players because you would never want anything to overshadow the fact that you just, you know, excelled at the pinnacle of the sport and like won the biggest tournament and the biggest trophy that there is to win. And unfortunately in the same span of time, you're dealing with that. And, you know, those in Portland may not be familiar with, with the um, situation between players and the Canada Soccer Association. How would you best articulate what players are seeking in in that discussion, and maybe where things currently stand in in those negotiations as they're ongoing? 
Yeah, for sure. This has been something that us as players have been engaged in for, you know, over you know about two years now, more intensely. Uh, we've been in negotiation with our federation all the way back in 2016 when we first started negotiating uh, collective bargaining agreements. And it wasn't really until the men's team found their success in their run to qualifying for the 2022 Men's World Cup that we really started to see the discrepancy in treatment between the two teams. Um, And we have a great relationship with a lot of the men's players, which has been really helpful in just kind of learning how things operate on their side, what kind of payment structure they have, which has historically been very different than ours. Um, And it wasn't until... 2016, when we began to negotiate collective collective bargaining agreements that we were paid at all by the Federation, which is unfortunately the reality for a lot of federations around the world um, and their women's team. And when I say we got paid, it was like, like nothing, essentially, which I think it's, it's a, uh, there's a lot of an argument for, oh, you shouldn't be paid to be, to play for your national team. It's, it's an honor. And, and I, I definitely don't disagree, but we're at a place in the game where it's possible um, and players should be, in my opinion, compensated for the job that they do on the world stage, especially if they're successful in that. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of all started when we, when we started to see those discrepancies and we spoke up about it and we've been in negotiation for a better pay structure, a better collective bargaining agreement for some time. Um, and it really kind of came to a, a point at the She Believes earlier this year. Um, where we really took a stand and just demanded better based on the way that we saw our men's team be prepared for the 2022 World Cup. And we, you know, felt like and definitely stood, stood firm in the fact that we deserved the same in the lead up to the 2023 Women's World Cup. And so there's a it's it's a very complicated and very deep seated uh, issue and still ongoing Definitely moving in the right direction, I would say. Uh, there's still a lot of frustration and still a lot of things that have yet to be agreed upon, but we did sign an interim compensation agreement for 2023. But for us as the players, the message that we wanted to get across and that we didn't want to be you know, misconstrued or have people get the wrong idea about is this, it really has never been about the money that we get paid individually. Obviously that's important in its own place, but it was really about equal treatment and equal resource because we were both going after the same thing. And there should never be an excuse that a women's team gets treated lesser than a men's team for doing the same thing. Um, And so, you know, that's resources like staffing, uh, travel standards, um, you know, access to the right training pitches, weight rooms, just everything that you need to be a high-performing athlete and a player and a team that's performing, you know, playing in a World Cup. So, you know, like I said, there's a lot to it, and and I could sit here for probably another hour to try and explain everything, but um, I'm optimistic that, you know, however long it takes, we are in the fight for the long haul, and we will... You know, we're fighting to create a better situation for the future of Canadian soccer. And there's so many young girls and boys who deserve the best uh, national team situation for, for their time to play on these teams. So we're, we're, much, we're very much aligned with our men's team in this whole thing. And, and we'll continue to have the conversations and fight where we need to. And, you know, hopefully come September, back that up on the field.
Absolutely. Um, you know, finishing on, on maybe more of a lighter note uh, than, than some of the heavier subjects that we've we've gone into, and I appreciate your your candor and and uh, analysis on those. I, I think it's it's excellent to have somebody articulate that. Um, you know, in your recovery time in the last few months, you know, have have there been any fun you know trips or activities that you've engaged in? You know, what what are some things that that fans might not know about you? Like what you're what you're into off the field. Um, you know, what, what, what can you share? It's a good question. Um, yeah, I think like it's been, it's been such an interesting period of time. Uh, I was having this conversation with Crystal the other day, like as an athlete, as a professional athlete, it's not like you get opportunities often to like go to your staff and be like, you know what? I just need, I just need like a break for a couple of months. I just need to like get away for like, it's just, it doesn't happen. It's the same thing in work. You just don't take months off at a time. And so when a, when a long-term injury comes around, not that anyone would ever want that, but it gives you an opportunity to work on things that maybe you can't work on in, in the midst of a season or have a different perspective about something. And so perspective has been such an important thing for me in this journey. Um, you know, like I'm physically, physically stronger than I've ever been because I'm not running like seven miles every weekend, uh, which has been really cool for me, but off the field, um, yeah, just getting the opportunity to spend time with my loved ones. I, I had to spend more time around family, around my surgery, just to have the support, you know, having people help take care of me, which it's incredibly hard for me to ask for help. So that was a big learning. Uh, but when you're on crutches for five weeks, there's quite a few things you can't do. Uh, I have so much, so much gratitude and, and love and respect for my family and my boyfriend and his family were absolutely amazing. Um, I've done a lot of cooking. I love to cook. I, everybody knows me. I love to drink coffee. So I've probably been over caffeinated for 90% of this recovery, but that's been helpful because then I have all the energy. Um, I haven't really, you know, like taken any big trips or, or done anything The my intention was to go to Australia and potentially be with the team, but it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so cliche to say everything really does happen for a reason. And I've seen that time and time again, in this injury. And I'm just really excited to have a renewed mindset and honestly, a really different mindset when I get to play the game again. Um, because yeah, I, I, it really, <laughs> things are cliche for a reason, right? Because they're true. Uh, and it's like, you really never know when it can all be taken away from you. So I'm just really excited to be able to play again, but I'm also really, really happy and excited about a lot of other areas of my life that have shown me that there's much, much more to this than than playing soccer. Janine Becky of the Portland Thorns and Canada Women's National Team, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. That'll wrap it up for us on Soccer Made in Portland. Follow us on Twitter at Soccer Made in PDX, at Chris Reifer, at Ryan T. Clark, and at Janine Becky. Make sure to like us, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review if you so choose, and tune in next week, and we'll have more to chat about on the Timbers and Thorns. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.